The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. Tonight's talk is on how we talk about practice. The um, premise of tonight's talk is that the ways we talk about practice, the words we use, what we mean or fail to mean uh, by those words. Their literal meanings, their connotations, all of this influences how we practice. I don't know if this premise has ever occurred to you uh, in case it hasn't or you would like some um, provocation, I'm going to bring up some different thoughts and questions to encourage you to examine how you personally and how your friends in practice talk about practice. I'll start with the word practice. Uh, What the hell does it mean? I've, um, in various visits and travels to the States when I still lived in Thailand, and since I was, um, I used to hear the term the practice. And, um, I never knew what it meant. People would talk about the practice, and I was always curious or puzzled. Well, what did they mean? And um, sometimes it was clear they were talking about some form of meditation, whatever that means. But, you know, you sit and you're kind of quiet and kind of still, and you're doing something inside. And that was often called the practice. Um, Because I received a, I wouldn't say mainstream Buddhist, but I did get a pretty solid Buddhist education in how the early, early teachings saw things like practice. Um, That was that idea that the practice was meditation uh, was always a head-scratcher. It still is. Um, At least it's not a Buddhist understanding. It's um, a meditator's understanding, maybe. So I want to explore this more and... I'm going to avoid trying to state um, what I think is the right uh, way to use these words because I'm more interested in encouraging everybody to look more carefully into the ways you talk about practice and when you're here talking with other people about practice to actually dig into what you're talking about and what you mean. And to be honest, do you even know what you mean? This is America. Um, We do, you know, it's the land of spin. And so it's not always important to know what you mean. It's more important to look good and successful, and smile, and stuff like that. I'm sure you know some of what you mean, and I want to encourage you to dig, dig deeper. So what do you mean by practice? Uh, the practice I hope you realize is an English word. 
it's a word the Buddha never used. Now, if you're not a Buddhist, that may not matter to you. Um, it matters to me. The, the Buddha never spoke English. Uh, he used a word more or less uh, patipati. Um, we don't know exactly what words the Buddha used just because of the way the teachings were passed on orally and then recorded. And we don't know exactly what dialects the Buddha spoke, but something close to patipati. This is the word from the Pali language, which the Buddha never spoke, but it emerged out of the early teachings. And it's the word that is mostly translated as practice into English. But literally what it means is to travel. Patipati is to travel a path. Is that what you mean when you think of practice? And by the way, I'm assuming that around common ground the word practice gets used a fair amount. But there are synonyms and it's good to examine some of those. So, but first of all, practice what do you mean? The early teachings, practice means traveling the path or the way. Well, what path and what way? When you're practicing, what path are, are you following? Is it a path with an objective or goal? What is that? So that's, that's one um, part of unpacking for ourselves what we mean by practice. For the Buddha, it's uh, habitually framed in terms of dukkha and the end or quenching of dukkha. Dukkha is suffering, distress, life being off kilter, out of balance. My preferred translation these days is distress. And the way the Buddha framed the path is the path, and this is standard translation, the path leading to or the maga, the path, the way, leading to the quenching of dukkha. Is that how you frame practice? I'm not saying you should frame it that way. I'm just using the Buddha's teaching as a kind of mirror for you to examine your own way of talking and thinking about practice. If we stick with the image of a way, if practice is to follow or travel a path, most of the time, I think in common sense, at least to me, not that my sense is normal um, or common, whatever, but I think often we assume that we're going somewhere. So is, is that a notion that you have when you talk about practice? That practice is going somewhere? If so, where? What, what is the nature of that going and how do you know when you get there? Is it? possible to know when, when you get there. <clears throat> Another aspect of this is how broadly or narrowly do you understand practice. The, 
the friends I um, referred to earlier who seem to use practice as a synonym or euphemism for meditation, which is another word that's not always easy to pin down. that compared to the body of Buddha's teaching is actually a quite narrow understanding of practice. Um, Meditation, if by that we mean the cultivation, the training of various mental, emotional, spiritual qualities is significant, but it's not necessarily the whole package. And so to construe practice as meditation is to give it a very narrow meaning. And then I sometimes hear people talking, well, whatever you do, be mindful. And then, you know, everything is practice out having a beer with the friends, watching the Packers game, or the Vikings, or whatever people here watch. Um, Is that practice? Of something, sure. But uh, is that what you mean when we talk about practice? closely related term in early Buddhism is sikati, which is usually translated training. And sikati is very consistently spoken of in three ways. There are three kinds of sikha. Sikati is the verb, sikha is noun. Three kinds of training, ethical which is basically a training in behavior of body and speech that doesn't harm ourself or others. That's ethics or morality in the early Buddhist perspective. And then there's jita sikha, which comes pretty close to what a lot of us mean by meditation, where we cultivate mental skills and qualities, mindfulness, concentration, inner calm and stability, loving kindness, things like this are considered to be mind training. But that can also include thinking, training how to think clearly using principles that Buddhism offers as pointers to truth. And cultivation or even meditation, especially if you go back to the Latin root of the English word meditation, it's about thinking in in the European tradition, less so in Buddhism but there's still space for that. And the third training is in wisdom. Uh, Roughly the same area as Vipassana insight, but not as a form of meditation, but the actual seeing clearly, seeing in line with reality. That is also what's meant by wisdom. And here the word used is panya, uh, the wisdom that sees in accordance with how things actually are. So when we think of practice, are we thinking in terms like this? or? But in traditional Buddhism, there's also the practice of dana, generosity, service, helping out in a very stereotypic way at the temple, 
but service could also be in the community, in society, as well as um, certain professions, teachers, doctors, who often would work pro bono when, depending, generally, traditionally in places like Thailand, doctors and so on were always on sliding scale, depending on how much, there weren't fixed fees. It was what people, this could afford to pay. But that's pre-modern with modernization, then the capitalist system took over and things developed fixed fees. But that's another topic. So some thoughts about the word practice, some questions for you to, to look into. Here's another one that I've come to consider important and influential. In, in some Dhamma talks I hear or some of the popular Buddhist magazines, I see words like lay practice. Do you ever use this word? There's, um, it seems to me there's the idea that there's lay practice and then some would call monastic practice. There's been a strong tendency in Buddhism over uh, the last millennia or two, but maybe not originally, to take the monastics as the paradigm of practice. And then in many Buddhist societies, so-called lay people, again, lay is actually a, a Western term. It's not a Buddhist term properly. And it, the translation's problematic. So I come across this word and over the years I've been asked questions where it seems that some people at least think in terms of, well, I do lay practice. What, what does that mean? Just so happens I was listening to a talk by Ajahn Buddhadasa that hit on this point and he he maintains that real practice, there's no such thing as lay or monastic. And I think according to Buddha's teachings at least, he's right. I think also in terms of real human experience, practice isn't about the outer lifestyle choices of say monastic or so-called lay, whatever that means, and I'll come back to it. But practice is about suffering, the causes, the conditions, the how suffering happens, how distress happens. And then practice is undermined, undermining the patterns and structures that keep recreating stress distress, suffering in our, in our lives. And in the Buddha's teaching, that's mainly what's going on inside. It's not about the kind of job you do. It's not about what clothes you wear, whether you shave your head or not. It's about certain internal things, especially those that focus on craving and clinging. So in that perspective, there's no such thing as lay practice. Or lay practice is just about the superficial trappings. And same with monastic practice. And so from his perspective, that actually confuses us what practice is about. And I've met people who kind of get 
twisted in knots about, well, if I'm really serious, do I have to become a monk? I was a monk for many years, now I'm not. And I, I got really tired of this question because 99% of the people asking it were never going to become a monk, especially the women. But they weren't going to become nuns either. So it was just a question that caused distress and doubt, or doubt and distress, which in terms of practice is a bad question. It's a question that causes us trouble. It doesn't free us from trouble. So I'll put that one out there. If you ever think in terms of lay practice, what does that mean? If we think of the English word, lay, in our culture, is sort of um, opposed to professional. If you're professional, you're trained. You might have a professional degree or a PhD or something, certification from some professional body. You can charge for your services. You supposedly know what you're doing. Whereas lay, what it lay often means amateur. Amateurs can be pretty good, but sometimes they're half-baked, goofy, don't know what they're doing. So when we speak of lay practice, what do we mean? And here, this is an example of also, if, if we don't think some of these words through, if they're terms that we regularly use, what if we hear the word lay practice a lot, or we think it? And even if we don't consciously mean this, what if in the background lay means amateur, not that committed, kind of rinky-dink, on again, off again. What, what are we saying? And what is the influence on our own minds, our own attitudes, our own practice? I'm not saying that the word lay practice in itself is bad or something. My main point is, if we're going to use these words, really look into what they mean in us consciously and to some extent unconsciously and is it helping us? Is it guiding us in the direction we want to go? If one uh, follows the Buddha then where we want to go is the end of dukkha freedom from distress, the non-arising of the craving and clinging, the greed, hatred, delusion, envy, fear, blah, 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 that perpetuates distress. Another um, perspective on this to bring in is when we talk about practice, do we ever talk about who practices? Most of us um, probably do a lot of our thinking in English. And English is a language that pretty much forces every sentence to have an, a subject. Is that? Yeah, subject. Some languages, like Thai, you can go many sentences without a subject. It's kind of fun. But in English, you know, it's either me or you or somebody, plural, singular, whatever. And it almost enforces us, it seems to me, and I'm, again, I'm not saying this is bad, I'm just saying it's something to look into. Does It forces us to speak in terms of somebody who practices. 
which is just the language. But what I'm concerned about is when we're talking about practice, who do we think is practicing? When you meditate, who's meditating? When you follow the ethical guidelines, who's following them? When you cultivate insight and wisdom, who's doing that? One way to answer that question is, well, me, of course. You know, it's not my mom or my dad or my boss or even my wife or her husband. It's me. I'm, I'm the one practicing. It's kind of the common sense way to answer. But in Buddhist teachings, it's a problematic way. In fact, there were a number of uh, dialogues where somebody would ask the Buddha questions like, well, who concentrates? And the Buddha would say, I can't answer that question. It's, it's, it's a poorly framed question. But if you asked, dependent on what does concentration come about, that can be answered. And then the, in these dialogues, then the person will go, so the Buddha would say, so if you asked it that way, then we could say can, concentration comes about through the calming of body and mind. Well then, who calms body and mind? And the Buddha would repeat, well, that's a poorly framed question. I can't answer that, but if you ask, due to what do the body and mind calm down, then, then he would respond. And this would go on and on. Now some might think this is just semantics. And if you do, then, you know, go ahead talking about practicing yourself. And of course, I don't want to get in some pseudo-autistic, you know, I'm not practicing. Because if we think there's a me who's not doing it, that's even more confused. But the question is to look a little deeper beneath the idea of somebody must be doing it, which is actually a very clumsy level of observation. It's not all that mindful. So to inquire more, I could go into lots of details here, but I'll just toss out a couple possibilities. One is to inquire that rather than it being me who practices to see a process unfolding and a variety of things are weaving in and out of that process. That's a lot harder to pin down, which we often want to do, but maybe trying to pin things down is sometimes dukkha or uh, stress-causing. If we want one fairly simple way to respond, instead of who practices, one could respond intelligence practices. There's a Thai term, it's a compound of sati, which is translated, has been translated mindfulness, but that word's now being scattered all over the place. So it's not clear what it means anymore. Panya is, means knowledge, understanding, wisdom. In Thai, sati, panya, together, you could translate it mindfulness and wisdom. Attentive, clear awareness with understanding, intelligence. So for now, I'll just translate it intelligence.
one could say that it's not that somebody practices, but intelligence practices. But if you explore that more, well, it's not just intelligence. There's a role for mindfulness, certain role for faith, commitment, perseverance, compassion, however you want to explore it. So in this um, piece, what I'm getting at, if, if we keep landing on the simple I practice, and of course sometimes that's the best response because we don't need to focus there. But if we dwell on the I practice, are we really seeing what's going on in practice. And when it's about I practice, if we delve into that, we might start to find out, well, if I'm practicing, then I'm bringing all my wants, expectations. Basically, if there's an I, there's desires, there's expectations, there's assumptions, it gets pretty cluttered. If we can slip under that assumption of I practice to actually look at the flow, the process of what's going on, whether in meditation, whether in ethical practice, such as making shopping decisions or dealing with a situation at work or in cultivation of wisdom, whatever. What are the actual processes where these practices bear fruition towards freedom from distress and suffering? So again, how we talk about, and by extension, how we think about practice can limit us quite a bit. And again, it's not really about the words. Sometimes there's no need to get complicated. You just say, yeah, I'm doing blah, blah, blah. But if we're not careful that I'm doing, I'm practicing, I'm meditating, starts to have influences, some of which may not really be to the benefit of good practice. Next, I'd like to um, think of some of the metaphors that get used It's believed that the Buddha was from the warrior caste. Although the archaeological evidence has undermined the traditional Buddhist stories about that, that where the Buddha grew up, they probably didn't have four castes, as in later Indian societies. But still, it seemed the Buddha and actually, strictly not the Buddha, but the pre-Buddha, the Bodhisattva. Uh, his dad was a chief, not a king, and Siddhartha was trained also to be a chief or something like that, and part of that was being a warrior. So early Buddhist teachings have a fair amount of warrior terminology, metaphors like fighting. Or in Thai Buddhism, I was quite familiar with um, the word cut. You didn't remove greed, hatred, delusion. You cut it off. You sliced it. And there were words like destroy. 
And um, especially since coming back to the States, I've personally been less and less comfortable with those words and hardly ever use them anymore. And I've, I've been examining this recently. So there's, there's one set of language that I don't hear much in kind of middle-class, liberal, uh, Vipassana meditation center places. It's that fighting language. Kill the defilements. Destroy the ego. And of course, we've... So. Now, I'm not saying we should use that language, and um, I'm just using it as a starting point. But there's another kind of language which um, I haven't worked out how to talk about this very well, so I'm sort of groping. But there's a, a very kind of relativist speak. There's a way of talking where we want to be nice and polite and not offend anybody. Uh, certain. And I'm wondering to the extent that happens. After all, I'm in Minnesota. Um, when I live in Wisconsin, um, there's that way of talking where you're supposed to be nice and polite and not offend. And then there's maybe a more West Coast version that compared to what I used to hear in Thailand is rather afraid to take a stand on anything. That's what I meant by relativist. You know, everything's kind of relative. All paths are pretty much the same, right? You know, all paths lead to the mountaintop. The Buddha never said that. If you see, there are all these quotes on the bottom of the emails the Buddha said, but there's no historical record of that predating the 70s. Um, so some of these, and I'm lambasting it a little bit, but I, I don't want to, you know, say it's all wrong or anything. But again, to inquire, what what are the kind of, what's the kind of feel we we use when we talk about practice? If we go back to that kind of warrior language. It's, it's got certain virtues, a certain toughness, not fooling around. But also it's got maybe drawbacks. It can be harsh. And for some of us, it can create, help foster inner tension if we're always fighting. Um, there are people who keep trying to fight stuff. And that may not be an effective way to go about letting go of greed, hatred, delusion. But yet if we kind of swing to an overly nice, polite way of talking and thinking, do we actually have the firmness to deal with stuff like greed, anger, hatred, delusion, racism, sexism, and that kind of stuff. I'm sure there are other sort of loose packages of styles of speaking, but those are the two that occurred to me tonight. I think I'll close with... Um, Well, let me bring up two more points. How many of you think about practice in terms of concentration? Does that word get used here? 
in some mindfulness places they don't use it much. Some do. What does it mean? Again, concentration is an English word. What does it mean? Um, now, here's a late Buddhist version, one that I don't think is quite right, but that's my opinion. Concentration is one-pointedness. Some of you may have come across that. There's a funny thing about one-pointedness, a kakata, which I used to hear all the time in Thailand. It doesn't appear once in the original Buddhist teachings. Not once. Never. Zilch. But a thousand years later, 1,500 years later, it became a standard term in describing meditation. Or... The, let's call it the technology of meditation. The term that appears in the early strata of teaching is something more like singleness of mind. I don't know about you, but to me, singleness of mind and one-pointedness don't seem to be the same thing. And and in some of the yoga, Vedic, Hindu teachings, samadhi, that's the Pali word translated concentration, means unification with God when it's a theistic approach. So what do we mean by concentration? Uh, literally, the word samadhi has the root in togetherness. Sang means together. The, the middle syllable, ah, means collected, gathered. So the word that gets translated, concentration, literally means gathering together. Is that what we mean when we concentrate? Or are we trying to get one-pointed? What does that mean? I get headaches when I try to get one-pointed. I'm, I'm just not that tiny. <laughs> or maybe my mind's too scattered. So even some of the technical languages, I, I already, I won't flog the word mindfulness but you know it's all over the map these days so it's important you know I get emails you know the latest scientific study that proves mindfulness is good for you although the uh, National Institutes of Health have not been impressed <laughs> but I get these emails but they're not always talking about the same thing, even though it says mindfulness is good for your blood pressure, mindfulness is good for whatever. So again, what do we mean by this technical language, mindfulness, concentration, whatever English words we might be using? Personally, I like to trace them back to the early language, as far back as we can go, which is a couple centuries after the Buddha, which seems to be pretty close to what the Buddha was talking about. That appeals to me, um, and that's what I try to do. But I recognize not everyone will or needs to do that. But I do think it's important to be as we go, clarifying what we mean by these. I don't mean you need to do a PhD first and then practice um, in your next life. But as we're doing whatever we take to be practice, I think it's wise to be exploring what we mean. My last uh, question about 
how we talk about practice is what kind of time frames do you use when you talk about practice? Do you think in terms of 30-minute sits, seven-day retreats? Do you think in terms of I remember when I was fairly new both to my my own um, training but also teaching. I was leading 10-day retreats and we had people coming in who had never done Buddhist meditation before, hadn't been exposed to Buddhist teachings. I'm talking the mid and late 80s, early 90s. And people assume that after a 10-day retreat, you'd probably be enlightened, right? <laughs> so that's, that's a time frame. Do a 10-day retreat. And so you've, you've got this pretty, pretty convenient frame. Okay, 10 days, sure. I'll st stop smoking dope and hanging out on beaches and I'll do whatever these guys tell me to do and after 10 days enlightened I'm not sure it worked out <laughs> so that's kind of funny it's naive but do we think of practice in terms of time If so, what, what kind of time frame? There's a couple interesting things about time. One is the Dhamma is described as akaliko, akaliko. Kala means time. Eco is kind of makes it an adjective having to do with time, and ah is a negative. So dhamma is, it's not bounded by time, not dependent by time. This is taken to mean that the practice and realization of dhamma, and by the way, dhamma here doesn't mean the Buddha's teachings. It means the experience of reality as it is that enables us to be free of dukkha. That is understood to be unbounded, unconstrained, unlimited by time, independent of time, both in practice and realization. So how does that square with thinking about practice in terms of time? Have you ever thought things like, well, if I just meditated more? Are you thinking in terms of more minutes, more hours, more days, more something? Conventionally, that might be a good idea for many of us. At the same time, where are we telling ourselves the benefits of practice will be? Ajahn Buddhadasa once observed something that's um, stuck with me ever since. Time is the distance between a desire and achieving one's desire. Time is the distance or gap between wanting something and getting it. I, I think of that, that's not clock time or calendar time, it's more like psychological time. If he's right and in my experiences, seems to bear out when we're orienting in time, 
we're always separated from what we want. If we're practicing for something and that practicing for something is in time, then we'll never get there. Zeno had a paradox about this, right? I, I don't remember what it is. I just remember you're, you're here, it's there, and you get halfway, and then you get halfway, and you get halfway, and you just never get there. And it's a different paradox, but the image of, you know, you keep moving, and you never get there. So it's interesting, on one level, it makes a certain amount of sense to think in terms of time. But what if we're so Im immersed in that and take it for granted? What if what we're looking for is always separate from us? Kind of a drag, right? <laughs> so, um, again, I've, I've tried to do this. You, you could try to talk as if there's no such thing as time. It can get weird. <laughs> it's just like the people who hear, you know, not-self, emptiness, and then try to talk as if I don't exist, except there's an I that doesn't exist, which gets it upside down. So anyway, it's not like we have to talk weird. But what I'm getting at to examine how we talk about practice, who practices, What's the time frame? Is there a sense of time? And see how this influences us. Does it benefit practice? Or does it obscure, confuse, limit? And it's fluid, so I'm not assuming we're going to come up with uh, hard and fast answers. But I do believe a certain amount of care concerning language is important. So I'll conclude my talk so that there's time for conversation, other perspectives, insights, Rebuttals. Uh huh. Gahapati. Though it, Gahapati meant somebody also with property. So it meant somewhat well to do. There's another word, um, Garavasa, which might be Sanskrit. I'm not sure if it goes back as far. That's a little broader. But there's another term. The Buddha spoke of the four porisa, or assemblies. The bhikkhus, the renunciate men, the bhikkhunis, renunciate women, upasaka and upasika, the male and female. And lay's not a good translation. Upa means close. And the way I learned it in Thailand, upasaka, upasika means those who are close to the religion. So, which implies intimacy and commitment. So, one of, I think one of the failings, and by the way, I appreciate what you said about roles and responsibilities, because that seems to me to fit the early teaching, rather than looking at the superficial outside, inquire what are the appropriate responsibilities that 
that's very much, that was an important part of how Ajahn Buddhadasa saw things. And rather than lay, I, I like the word upasaka, upasika, because it means commitment. It's someone who's committed. So it's not, you know, oh, I'm checking it out, I'm trying it out. It's people who've gone, this is central to my life and I'm going to do my best. You know, with ups and downs and failings and all that. But commitment, and I think lay doesn't always convey that level of commitment. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky. For, for some, like, I mean, I'm happy to say I'm a Buddhist, though in my mind I'm thinking I've still got a lot of work to do. So it's not so much about being somebody, something, it's in my mind more an aspiration and an inquiry and a letting go that I'm committed to. I think when people ask questions, it's tricky because our culture likes to ask, what do you do? Uh, it was interesting when I first went to Thailand, nobody asked me, what do you do? They would ask, um, how many brothers and sisters do you have? Are your parents still living? They asked family questions. And sometimes they'd ask how much I made, <laughs> which you don't do here. <laughs> but uh, but here we like to ask, what do you do? It might be helpful to recall the Buddha would generally s seem to start with wherever somebody was and say something useful. So out of all the ways you could answer, look at the person and try to come up with something that might be of use to them. They might hear something new that might be worth them considering. Accepting that there's no way you're going to be able to explain in any depth or detail all that's going on in you. And the other person may not want that. <laughs> they might want a pretty short answer because then they want to talk about something more interesting. <laughs> so don't waste your breath. So come up with a few pithy, provocative things. I, well, I'm practicing not to ask stupid questions like that. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, one of my fallbacks over the years is that I'm, I'm trying to shift my life from self-centeredness towards unselfishness. And often that was my short, simple answer. Focusing less on what you do, but more the change that we're trying to facilitate through whatever practices we, we're doing, whatever form of mindfulness or whatever. And I liked that response because it has many dimensions, both the meditative side, but many others. And it's kind of funny if we say, I'm a meditator. Oh yeah, how many hours a day do you meditate? Okay, you're a meditator, an hour a day, 20 minutes. Hmm. I'm an eater more than I'm a meditator. <laughs> or a, a latte sweller, you know. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, 
So I moved back here about 2000 in the 80s and 90s. For the most part, Thais weren't, except for a small, educated, English-speaking minority, they weren't really relating to what was going on in the West. So that's happened much more since. But still, they're more interested, like um, Thich Nhat Hanh teachings are, have a growing uh, popularity in Thailand, things like that. Because there's still a prejudice towards monastic teachers. And so there, there's, in general, less interest in teachers who aren't monks. But what was going on in the 80s and 90s and something Ajahn Buddhadasa put a lot of energy into was Thais grew up with certain Buddhist terms and many of them had taken on stereotypic meanings and people really didn't know what the words meant. So he and other teachers were trying to get people to actually learn what they were talking about. So it, a different angle of what I was talking about tonight, that there was a cluster of roughly Buddhist ideas and terms, but poor understanding. And so the task was to dig back into the roots of these terms or what they properly meant. Nowadays, uh, I go back every year and interact with middle-class people in Bangkok. I'm not much in touch with village Buddhism like I'd been back in the 80s and somewhat, and in the 90s. In the middle class, um, they're just kind of getting battered by bad economy, uh, boom and bust, all kinds of influxes of psychological stuff. So there's, there's traditional Thai Buddhism, there's some of the newer movements, some good, some pretty disgusting. Then there's stuff, there's um, <clears throat> various forms of Tibetan Buddhism coming in. I mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh. There are like 12 Goenka retreat centers, so those are quite popular. So there's all these things just kind of churning around, and things are pretty scattered, kind of like here. And so people who are paying some attention are hearing words getting used but can't always trace the, the nuances of, like, say, Goenka-style Vipassana and Mahasi Sayadaw-style Vipassana, which was what originally started at IMS and then kind of West Coast Vipassana with a lot of humanistic psychology mixed in, et cetera, et cetera. Did that respond to some of your questions? Some social commentators who both have a pretty good understanding of religion and what's going on culturally point out that it's since the 70s or 80s, the primary religion is consumerism. And some people can't tell the difference between consumer capitalism and Christianity here or there between Buddhism. But what they're actually doing is operating more on consumption models than Buddhist teachings. The trappings might look like the old Buddhist stuff, but 
the actual mindsets seem to have changed. Might be time for one more. Yeah, and um, with a lot of the things I brought up and things like this, you know, maybe now you could look back and see what was useful and healthy, what was off balance, what was attractive in ways that sort of sucked you in, um, what was off-putting, and maybe there's some lessons you could still get from it. Because I, I find sometimes I need a certain, I don't know if I would use knife edge, but I need a edge. And if I don't have that edge, I'm just kind of gliding and lazy. But that's me and each person finding. <clears throat> and for me also, it's not like one set of, like the warrior language is always the way to go or never. It's usually not that simple. And so sometimes to bring up the Manjushri's sword, cutting through delusions. And other times be Kuan Yin with the nice little fragile vase of, I don't know what's in there, but <laughs> something good, I hope. <laughs> this talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.